Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This is the time of year when it's often difficult to get guests with holidays and end of the year and all that. But that's no problem, because we have so many things that we can deep dive into. Today, I want to take you on a deep dive into the world of the gut microbiome. Of course, this won't be all-inclusive, but we can look at gaining a uniquely chiropractic perspective on these things, along with some clinical applications. So let's take some time to discuss the gut microbiome. My original deep dive into the microbiome began when I was still teaching on campus at Life University, and I had some free time on my hands, especially on the weekends. I began by listening to lectures given by people who were full-time researchers, uh, and they studied the gut microbiome primarily. I learned a lot of interesting things, but one stood out above all the others, and I think that's the best place to start. The thing that stood out to me was that the research shows time and again that weight loss is not sustainable unless it leads to a change in the gut microbiome. This simple realization has profound implications for anyone who's looking to lose weight, but it also gives us the perspective that being overweight is a clear indication of poor gut health. Is gastric bypass effective for weight loss? Only if it leads to a change in the gut microbiome. The same is true of keto, carnivore, or any other elimination diet you choose. It will only work long-term if it creates a positive change in the microbiome. So this begs the question, how do we do that? Well, I don't think I can give you a complete and comprehensive answer to that question, but I can tell you one thing and how I've applied it clinically. There's, there's research, a pretty good amount of it actually, that shows that if you test a person's biome composition and then you have them eat a carrot a day along with their normal diet and then retest their biome after five days, you'll see a radical transformation in their biome composition. This is caused by the fact that raw carrots have some unique fibers both soluble and insoluble, that lend to their unique benefits. That also means you can't cook the carrots or simply juice them, but you must consume raw carrots to get the benefit. So here's the clinical application. I had a patient, a teenager, who had gut issues. She would have one bowel movement a week on Saturday morning. That's because she would take a laxative Friday evening, and without it, she would not have a bowel movement at all. Of course, we started with chiropractic alone. It was L2 to be precise. She appeared to have a paralyzed transverse colon, and the L2 created immediate benefit, but there were still some issues. So, knowing this research, I had her begin to eat a carrot a day. In a few weeks, she was nearly normal, but then her family went on vacation, and she regressed. When she got back, we started again on L2, and she continued with the carrots, but we could only get her to about 80% better. After hunting around a little bit, I found a T4, and decided it was worth it to do that with the L2 since they're both in the same system. To my surprise, I must admit, it actually worked, and she improved dramatically over the next few weeks. She's now doing very well, and I haven't seen her for many weeks now. I don't want to give the impression that the carrots worked any kind of miracle, but I do think they were a beneficial piece of the puzzle, and I don't know what our results would have been without them. For those patients with microbiome issues or unproductive bowel movements, Carrots are a cheap and beneficial addition to their diet. Some other helpful tips that I learned from the researchers and the consequent changes they made in their own diets. There's no doubt that vegetables have the greatest positive impact on the gut microbiome, but it's equally unarguable that a vegetarian diet is far more damaging than it is beneficial. 
Well, like usual, health is not found at the extreme, but at the balancing point between the two extremes. This is a bit complex, so let me start with some background. The research shows that any negative effects of red meat are associated with a compound called TMAO. However, the effects of TMAO can be mitigated by eating vegetables first. The research shows that greatest impact on the biome is created by eating a large variety of vegetables, and this comes from eating vegetables with a variety of colors. Therefore, when trying to affect a change in the biome, my directions are simple. Eat your vegetables before you eat your meat, and eat vegetables with a wide variety of colors. In fact, when shopping, try to choose colors you wouldn't normally eat. Many of these principles we've covered in a previous episode, so here's what happened since then that made me want to cover this today. At the last extravaganza, I was talking with Parker Adams, and he recommended I read Super Gut by William Davis. William Davis originally wrote Wheat Belly, a book that I read previously. In this book, he describes how wheat has changed over the years to become more complex, meaning it has more chromosomes than wheat of years gone by. This complexity poses a challenge to our digestive system, which results in a change to our immune system as well. Much of the obesity we see at epidemic proportions today is the re result of immune systems gone wild, but we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. In the introduction to Supergut, William Davis explains that after writing Wheat Belly, he realized he had only addressed half the problem. The other half of the problem is the massive destruction of a gut microbiome. I don't want to give the false impression that only obese people have issues with their biome, but some people are very thin and they still have massive gut issues. This means you can't judge a person's biome by appearance alone. If they are obese, they have biome issues. If they're thin, they might have biome issues. In Supergut, William Davis goes on to explain that gut health isn't determined by the number of qu or quantity of bacteria. We already knew that the research shows that biodiversity, the number of different strains or species of bacteria, is a better predictor of health than simple quantity. William Davis shows that certain strains or species are more beneficial than others. The first of these is Lactobacillus ruteri, and the other is Lactobacillus gassii. It turns out that most commercially acquired probiotics don't have either of these two strains, and that's why their benefits are limited, especially if your gut biome has been destroyed by antibiotics. Speaking of antibiotics, let's take a brief but relevant detour for just a moment. If I wanted to make an antibiotic, how would I do that? Do you know where antibiotics come from? I didn't. But it turns out the antibiotics are mycotoxins produced by fungi. Oh, but that's not all. It turns out that within our bodies, the bacteria and fungi have a symbiotic relationship between each other where they keep each other in check and they prevent overgrowth. Most Americans, I can't speak for other countries, have had antibiotics at some point in their life. I had a patient tell me the other day that as a teenager, she was kept on antibiotics for a full year as a treatment for acne. Of course, it caused a host of gut issues that she has never fully resolved. That's because once we kill the bacteria, we create fungal overgrowth. This overgrowth produces symptoms, but those symptoms are usually treated with another round of antibiotics, so the problem gets worse instead of better. Research shows that 80% of Americans present with symptoms of fungal infection, yet doctors will rarely treat fungus as the source of disease. It doesn't fit their paradigm. There are many symptoms of fungal infection, but one of the most relevant to us is joint pains. So let me tell you a story. I found out about this drug called fluconazole. I don't even know if I can say it correctly. <laughs> I found it in a product called Candida Cleanser. Fluconazole is made from palm trees and rubber trees, but what's really interesting about it 
is that it cannot interact with the human body. Its only action is on chitin, and the human body contains no chitin. Chitin is the hard material that makes up lobster shells and cockroach shells. Fungi use chitin to create a protective barrier, along with biofilms, to defend themselves against your immune system. Fluconazole breaks down this protective barrier and allows your body to eliminate the overgrowth. I personally was having gut trouble for the last few years following a hospitalization. At the time I was hospitalized several years ago, I was having trouble with my liver that I now know was due to chronic poisoning, but that's a totally different story for another time. Nonetheless, I was misdiagnosed in the hospital as having a bacterial infection, and I was given a lot of powerful antibiotics. Ever since then, I was having a lot of gut trouble. Based on everything I told you previously, I knew I had a problem with fungi, so I decided to do the 45-day cleanse with fluconazole. The protocol consists of one pill, four times a day, for five days. You then take 10 days off before repeating the cycle again and ending with five days of one pill four times a day. From the very first pill on day one, I knew that something was happening. Keeping in mind that the pill cannot interact with your chemistry at all, the sicker you get on this cleanse, the more that's an indication of fungal overgrowth. The very first pill gave me a vague headache within 10 minutes of taking it, but that was just the beginning. By day three, I thought I was going to die. The headache was much more intense and it included brain frog, so I could hardly think. I had pain in my joints, and my left elbow hurt so bad I thought I might have broken it. The next day, the joint, the pain in the elbow was gone, and then it was in my right knee. Now getting back on track. The reason why I started this fungal cleanse was because I started taking L-ruteri and L-gassii, but I found that it wasn't making much difference. Actually, it made no difference. That told me that the fungal imbalance was so bad but I couldn't get enough bacteria in at one time to reestablish the balance. The obvious conclusion was to kill off some of the fungi. Well, I just started taking the bacteria again, and the first dose did more this time than a month of taking it previously had done. If you're trying to reestablish gut health for a patient, it's very important to understand the balance between bacteria and fungi, how that balance is destroyed, and how to repair it. I can tell you that most people who take probiotics and think they suffer from bad bacteria are probably in a state of low bacteria and have a fungal infection. If all of that wasn't complex enough, there's one more aspect that we need to look at that has completely turned this issue on its head for me in the last three years. That's right, three years. So of course, we must be talking about COVID. In 2021, Tao Zhao et al. reported microbiome alterations following COVID-19, accumulating evidence shows that COVID-19 alters the gut microbiome, mycobiome, that's the fungi, and virome, that's the viruses. In other words, you have complete disruption of the gut balance, which has a profound effect on overall immunity and inflammatory state. You can also see an increase in opportunistic bacteria, fungi, and eukaryotic viruses, while the symbiotic bacteria and bacteriophages are massively decreased. These microbiome features persist for some time after the resolution of the acute illness and may be associated with certain symptoms of long COVID. One of the most likely outcomes is opportunistic candida infections, which have largely been ignored because most medical doctors are poorly trained to recognize and treat fungal infections. These persistent fungal infections are a major impediment to resolving the COVID-related gut issues. Many of them will persist indefinitely because they aren't being addressed and corrected at all. Swati Rajput et al. 
discuss the role of the gut microbiota in mediating inflammatory states. Opportunistic gut infections don't just increase inflammation and worsen the outcome from COVID infection by shifting the immune response in a way that leads to multi-organ damage, but these persistent infections also keep the inflammatory state high post-COVID, leading to more severe outcomes with subsequent infections. The moral of the story here is that when you have a patient showing signs of long COVID and experiencing gut symptoms, you should suspect fungal infection first, as this is most likely. If it's not fungal, then it's the result of opportunistic bacteria, and that means probiotic supplementation. As we discussed earlier, that should be l and l which you will not find in most commercial preparations. You can find them, however, on Amazon, but you have to look for them specifically. There's another important aspect of the gut that we have mentioned before, but we need to tie it all together here. Gut permeability is controlled by the vagus nerve. Clinically, it's associated with the left vagus, so that would be a listing of ASLA or ASRP. AILA and AIRP are also options, but they're rare, so we tend to forget about them. COVID is again associated with this problem because the vagus nerve has ACE2 receptors, so coronavirus spike proteins have an affinity for the vagus nerve, leading to dysregulation of the gut. This scenario has nothing to do with subluxation and leads us to the frustrating conclusion that there's nothing we can do to help the patient. If you're anything like me, that's not an acceptable conclusion. I've been searching for answers, but I've come to the conclusion that as long as the gut is dysregulated, the vagus is unfixable because it's perpetually pushed in the wrong direction. Fixing the gut seems to be the best first step, and then fix the vagus after that. The reason why l and l have so much value is because of the way they can correct SIBO. If you're unfamiliar, SIBO, SIBO or S-I-B-O, is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. At this point, you shouldn't be surprised to know that there is also CIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. When the bacteria from the small intestines works its way up into the stomach and even into the esophagus, l and l are able to push the bacteria back to where it belongs, and this is why these two species are so valuable. Studies show the prevalence of SIBO is estimated as high as 50% with celiac disease, 38% with IBS, and 50% with liver cirrhosis. In asymptomatic, morbidly obese patients, its prevalence is still 17%. SIBO is a frequent problem anytime there are gastrointestinal issues. A recent study showed that roughly 25% of patients with unexplained GI symptoms had evidence of CIFO, that's the fungal one. Proton pump inhibitors have been implicated as predisposing the patient to CIFO and are therefore a frequent cause. Patients with chronic renal failure are predisposed to SIBO. Another study looked at colectomy with 50 subjects and 50 controls. The study found that colectomy doubled the number of patients with SIBO. It was 62% of the 50 of the 50 people who had the procedure. The colectomy also increased the prevalence of mixed SIBO and CIFO infection three times until it was nearly a quarter of the group that had both infections. What should be coming clear is that all things are not equal, so certain groups are at greater risk of infection than others, and that SIBO and CIFO are widespread problems and they are not a rare occurrence. SIBO and CIFO are not problems that can be solved with adjustments, but their presence might be making your adjustments less effective than they should be. This is the reason why I wanted to talk about the gut today. There are certainly many situations where an adjustment can make a big difference with gut problems. However, 
There are also some gut problems that will keep your adjustments from making a big difference. The symptoms of SIBO are pretty vague and general, so it's important to know how prevalent it is so you'll suspect it when the patient has persistent bloating, nausea, diarrhea, or fatigue. There are other symptoms too, so you'd be wise to familiarize yourself with all the symptoms for some of those more unusual cases. Well, I hope you found this useful and that it helps you to gain a better understanding of gut issues and the influence of COVID infection, as well as SIBO and CIFO. These issues are far more rampant than we tend to believe, but especially post-COVID. Getting the gut right is a huge part of the equation. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.